Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and joining me as he always does on this beautiful January day is President Scott Wyatt. Hi, Scott. Hello, Steve. It's nice to be with you today. It is, and uh, we're going to talk to somebody who is in a much warmer part of the country today, uh, and... Uh, I was saying in our little preliminary interview that I am actually an alumnus of this university, Arizona State University, and a proud Sun Devil. Uh, got my doctorate there, uh, did my undergraduate and master's at the University of Utah, but lived in the Phoenix area for a long time and have nothing but great love and respect for Arizona State University. And our guest is a very prominent member of the administration at ASU, and why don't you introduce him? Thank you so much. Yeah, we have with us today Dr. Sethu Raman Panchanathan, and uh, I think you typically go by Dr. Panch. Is that right? That's right, Scott. You did a great job with my name. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are the Chief Research and Innovation Officer at one of um, America's most innovative universities. So we're honored to have you with us. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, and I'm delighted to be with you. Why don't we start by um, inviting you to provide just a little bit of an introduction. You haven't been the Chief Research and Innovation Officer your whole time at Arizona State. Um, you've served in a variety of roles. So why don't you start by telling us how you went, how you first came to, to Arizona State, and then um, walk us through that quickly. Happy to do so, Scott. I came to Arizona State University in 1997, and I often joke around, as we have uh, President Crow at ASU since 2002, that I was part of the before Crow or the BC era of ASU. <laughs> <laughs> so I joined as a faculty member in computer science and engineering department. And by the time President Crow came here in 2002, I had started a research center called the Center for Cognitive ubiquitous computing, which I still direct. And that center is responsible for designing devices and technologies for assisting individuals with disabilities. And when President Crow came here, he looked at what I was doing and it aligned with his vision for what a university ought to be, transdisciplinary, solutions focused, with impact at the same time advancing this fantastic intellectual persona and innovation and an entrepreneurial mindset, all of that at the university. And he saw what we were doing at the center that had those elements. And so he asked me if um, I would lead the computer science and engineering department. And so I became the chair of the department soon after he arrived here. And then I proposed the formation of a new school of computing and informatics, which is how do you bring computer science and work with various problems for which solutions require 
collaborations between computer scientists as and engineers as well as you know psychologists cognitive scientists you know anthropologists uh, from the, from the school of business and a host of other areas across the university in order to find real solutions to problems so this school then is evolved and matured and is doing exceedingly well as one of the schools in the Fulton schools of engineering and then in 2009 i came to the central administration as leading the research activities as a chief research officer and then over the years i've taken on the roles of also coordinating entrepreneurship and innovation corporate engagement global development strategic partnerships economic development and clinical partnerships so the portfolio has grown and now i'm the executive vice president and the chief research innovation officer at asu through this set of roles at the university i've had the good fortune of interacting with thousands and thousands of students and hundreds and hundreds of faculty who all are tremendous assets driving this institution into the future and I'm blessed to work with my colleagues and with president crow and his fantastic vision for the university uh, it's been a privilege and an honor to serve at arizona state university why don't we uh thank you so much and what an exciting opportunity to be um part of leading innovation at uh, such an impressive place why don't we start um some of our conversation here with about asu's charter regarding inclusion can you can you tell us a little bit about that absolutely you know if you look at most universities clearly you know we are all looking to get the best and the brightest talent into the universities and one way of doing that is by saying that we would take the you know the typical you know what is the sat score what is your under uh, high school gpa and other metrics by which you then start to look at the various applications and then you weed out those people that you do not uh, admit to the university and you take the top whatever percentage that you decide to take because you have a certain number of slots in the university and that's the modality of admitting students to the university which you know you could characterize as a process of exclusion right now right. at asu we have taken a different approach as part of what the charter says we measure ourselves by not who we exclude but by who we include and how they succeed in other words if there are students who are capable of going through a post secondary education experience and we then ensure that they are given the opportunity to come into the university so that they might thrive in the university and you know becomes a place where they can express their talent and therefore given the opportunity to really build their skill sets mindsets and career aspirations through the process of going through the university and when you do that often times the feeling is if you are including these students from various socio economic uh, demographic then you might not be excellent somehow access and excellence do not necessarily go together in fact we have challenged that assumption and we have shown that our excellence through any metric has also shown simultaneous progress and for example our research 
volume has grown at the same time as our student numbers have grown and that we've embraced the socioeconomic demographic of our state in terms of the admissions. And our research in 2002 was $110 million of annual research. This year, we just finished uh, the year that concluded last June 30th. We call it the fiscal year 18. We are reporting $620 million, $618 million. We are the fastest growing research university in the United States for universities over $100 million. And that's because of the fact that we have shown that access and excellence can not only coexist, but in fact, be mutually reinforcing and synergistic. And at the same time as we are doing the access and excellence mission, the last piece of the charter says that we are committed as a university for this emission of impact. That is, we assume fundamental responsibility for the economic, social, cultural, and overall health and of the community that we serve. So that we can have access, excellence, and impact as, as our aspirations, and that we are able to make progress on all fronts uh, is really an exciting uh, thing for us. Yeah, these national um, rankings of universities typically rank us higher the more people we exclude, um, suggesting that we're so wonderful because everybody wants to come here and we can only admit a small percentage of them and they're usually the smartest in that group. And so you've kind of looked that in the eye and said, uh, that's that doesn't work for us. Yes, this doesn't work not only for us as a university, but as a region, the state, and the nation. Because there are so many uh, well-qualified uh, individuals, youth, who need the educational opportunities so that they might thrive and prosper this in is, their future. This is an interesting... Um, I don't want to get too caught up in this, but my dad was a research, senior researcher and professor at Utah State University uh-huh. working in the Space Dynamics Laboratory um, and the most prolific writer in that group. And he told me that under the current admission standards, he wouldn't have been admitted to the engineering program as an undergraduate. <laughs> yes. Many folks say that. Many <laughs> folks say that. Was, and that's the interesting bloomer. part. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The, you know, many of us can attest to the fact that when opportunities are given and the right environment is provided, the right ecosystem is made available, we thrive and we flourish. For yeah. example, our student population is socioeconomically identical to the breakdown of Arizona. 53% of Arizona freshmen are from underrepresented populations. And our access and outreach efforts, combined with our financial aid policies and student success programs, have essentially resulted in doubling the numbers of first-generation students over the last decade. So this is huge in terms of being able to provide those opportunities. And you see them succeed and succeed not just, you know, graduating from the university, but some of them are winners of amazing awards. They get employment in fantastic places. And it is wonderful to see them succeed that way. What do you see as the... Let's uh, talk for a few minutes about um, ASU Online. What do you see as the differences between the students that are online versus the students that are on your campus taking face-to-face classes? How would you... Um, compare those? 
See, typically you find the 18 to 24-year-old demographic of students, they thrive in an environment where, you know, you have the face-to-face, you have the community of students that they come with, and there is a lot to be had in terms of the experience of being in a university setting on campus. Clearly, there is tremendous value, and we see that in our students. But then there are many, many, many thousands of students who never had the opportunity to graduate for a variety of reasons. They had to exit and go and, you know, take on uh, work in order to be able to support their families or, you know, those kinds of situations that they uh, require that require them to not necessarily be at the university for the length of time it takes to graduate. So in those situations, you want them to have the opportunity to be able to take on the courses that they need to take on with the flexibility that, ne- that they need to have with their lifestyle and and other situations that then gives them the opportunity to still finish their graduation. So that's one demographic of students that are online. Then there is a demographic of students who are already in the workplace who want to upgrade their skill, reskill, and um, which means that they then find this mechanism of online on demand, you know, at the uh, you know uh, being able to do it flexibly. That makes a huge difference for them. And therefore, that demographic of students have to be served. For example, you know, when you look at our Starbucks partnerships, you know, the Starbucks partners, they call the employees partners. Now, they are baristas to all the people that work in Starbucks in different roles. They might have not had a chance to finish their, you know, undergraduate degree, or they might have wanted to pursue a, a graduate degree. So, these are folks that are enrolled in our online program, which gives them an opportunity, as I said, to upskill themselves, to reskill themselves, to finish the degrees that they started that did not give an opportunity, get an opportunity to do so. So we find the online outreach is phenomenal. Having said that, there's an important point to be made here that the online development, which is again taught by our outstanding caliber research faculty, the same faculty that teach our on-the-ground, on-campus students are the faculty that teach our online students also, which means the quality is at the highest level. Some of the content that they develop for the online students now become available for on-campus students. We call them, therefore, on-campus technology-enabled. That is, they are able to now take advantage of these technology-enabled delivery of courses and content and modules that then enriches the learning experience of on-campus students at the same time. Hmm. So we see it as a win-win. Yeah, that's very interesting. What's the average age of your um, online student? I would, I mean, I, I don't have the exact number of the top of my head. I would venture to say, you know, sometime in some some kind some kind of mid mid thirties to late thirties kind of a thing would be an average age, I would think. But I have to verify those numbers for you, though. You're seeing, though, what you're describing is um, the online students are students who could not go to campus. Uh, many of them are people who are in work situations that does not allow them to come on campus. They may be remote. They may not even be in Arizona. They may be, you know, in different parts of the country. We serve our online students in several countries across the several across the various continents. You know, we have a program called the Global Freshman Academy, which is the freshman courses being available for students free until they decide that they want to then, you know, get credits for the course. They will pay a small fee for identifying their, uh, their uh, you know, verifying the identification rather. 
And for example, Global Freshman Academy is in over 195 countries. Students from all parts of the globe are enrolled in Global Freshman Academy courses. Our 30,000, 35,000 know, um, program students are students, again, from you know, 140 countries. So this is something that we find allows for students wherever they are. We have students who are you know, on, uh, on aircraft carriers uh, you know, in, in, in the Gulf, for example. So these are people that then get a chance to dial in and be able to get the quality education experience so that they might then upskill themselves or reskill themselves. You're, you um, started into online in a big way about 10 years ago. Yeah. What was the leading motivation for doing that? At the time... Um, online education was seen differently than it is today. Yes. Almost exclusively for the profit schools. Um, and you became one of the first public research universities to say, we're going to embrace this. What was the, what was one of the, knowing that this might have a negative impact on your reputation? What was so the think, leading uh, motivation? I think the motivation was, as I said earlier, we have, you know, several thousand students who did not graduate from the university for a variety of reasons. How might we get them to complete their education? Because they deserve that opportunity to be able to do so. How might we serve our corporates where there are people who are in the workforce that need uh, the, the opportunity to upskill themselves? And so those were the most, yeah, go ahead. Were, were you worried back then that it might have a negative impact on the reputation of ASU? We were not worried for the following reason, because we were deploying outstanding research faculty, research caliber faculty, the same faculty who teach our on-the-ground students. And that's a big distinguishing feature. When you have a university who's putting the same quality of instruction, no difference between on-campus and online students. In fact, sometimes our our, our, our surveys show that our online students feel the quality is even higher because we give them a lot of, you know, um, experiences that through technology that is made possible. And that's why we were recently ranked the second in the nation in terms of ASU online undergraduate program by the U.S. News and World Report because we focus on quality. We wanted to make sure that the products that we have there are no different if not better, so that people might get what they need to advance in their careers. So I've, and, actually, uh, I've yeah. actually taken some online courses, and, um, and Steve Meredith here seated by me has taught online courses. Yeah, I actually oversee a master's degree here in oh. music technology that's oh, taught neat. entirely online. And I took, a, I took a master's degree in American history and government class that was half online, just for fun. Yes. yes. Um, and, I, and I would agree with you. My experience was very positive. And I've seen reviews of your classes, Steve. Your, your students are having a very positive experience. My, um, I, I, he may not appreciate my, my saying this, but my department chair, when he comes in for my annual um, review, faculty evaluation review frequently puts the forms on the desk and says these are these are among the highest or the highest rated courses that we have in the music program 
And and the follow-up question at the beginning was, how are you doing that? Um, <laughs> because you're doing this all online. And I, I well, we, we hire very talented faculty, and we have very talented course development specialists here that help us. And right. and um, and I'll circle back to what President Wyatt was saying. When, when you all started this in earnest 10 years ago, um, if we think back about technology the way it was 10 years ago, if you haven't visited an online course in a while, I think people would be shocked at, at how much they have changed and how much they have improved and, and how much the technology has allowed for greater interaction between student and faculty member. And uh, uh, I, I, to be honest, I was a little bit of a skeptic. I'm a, a you know, I'm an ASU conservatory trained classical musician, and I was a little bit skeptical about delivering an online program, despite the fact that it was in music technology, delivering it 100% online. And and I will say, I I am an evangelist for that now. I uh, I regularly speak in our cabinet meetings and and uh, other places about um, uh, uh, about the fact that I seem to get to know these students better than I than I have over a a, a career of thirty plus years in front of students uh, in a classroom, and I I think it's because I think there's a a distance uh, a, a freedom that students feel. Um, composing their thoughts behind a keyboard that they may not feel surrounded in a, a, a classroom of their peers. Where everybody's I, staring them down. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that the one is necessarily better than the other. I am, however, suggesting that um, that the automatic um, poo-pooing or gainsaying of, of, of uh, online education that used to 15, maybe 20 years ago, we, that, you know, that was... That was sort of an automatic response amongst traditional academics. It has dramatically changed and dramatically improved, and in many ways, I think, is is not only the equal but better. Absolutely, Stephen Scott, you just you just said exactly what I was, uh, you know, thinking and going to say. It's just unbelievable what technology has been able to bring to the table here, and we have similar experiences. These are outstanding research faculty who are skeptical. But now would come and tell us this has been the best experience because now I'm able to inspire, motivate, and get students to understand the concepts that I thought that the students were not, uh, you know, uh, capable of understanding. They were stupid or whatever. But instead, that I realized that how blind I was to not being able to deliver them what they needed in order to get them to understand. And they have found unbelievable outcomes from that. And they feel that, you know, I only wish that we had it, you know, so many years back all through my career. So this is the kind of thing that we get often is faculty telling us. And it has been a tremendous help to faculty, too, because, as you said, the instructional designers who work with faculty now take the content, which is the expertise of the faculty member, and then present it in ways that makes it very exciting, engaging interactive and so that what happens then the faculty member now is you know when we talk, we talked about the flip classroom concept right the faculty member now is having this rich content and then uses the time in the lectures to now engage with the students in an interactive way to be able to address their questions the areas where they find that they need more development and strength to be built uh, in around the content area and they spend more time doing that so it's an amazing 
experience for faculty also. Um, and so it has been, as I said earlier, a win-win from so many perspectives. When you first began this, uh, how did your faculty react? No, I think there was, uh, you know, uh, agreeably a sense of skepticism. I, me being one of the faculty members myself, there is always skepticism about these things. But when you start to look at the faculty getting digitized, right, meaning that they get trained to how to use these, and then they are surrounded by these experts who are willing to design, co-design with them the content, then the faculty just get on board and they see the outcome of what it means to students. And then they, they become even more excited by this. So we have found that this concept of, you know, what it could do for not only students on campus, but students online, and even support this concept that we have been talking about a lot, President Crow, is lifelong learning. That learning never, it only starts at the university or continues at the university from your school, but then you leave and learning continues all through your life. And that you're able to get that done because of the fact that the same infrastructure that enriches the experience of students on campus, which now provides the ability for students outside to be able to get access to it, and then people then being able to tap into this all their life so that they might you know, stay abreast or just even curiosity-based. I mean, I'll tell you my, my, my father, who's also a professor, by the way, we have something in common, Scott. And um, my dad, an electronics and communication engineering professor, uh, when he semi-retired at the age of 80, he went and enrolled into a master's in history and completed it. You know, he enrolled in 81, completed in 84, when he was 84, because he's always been passionate about history. And he felt that he wanted to just enroll in this program and just discipline himself to be able to learn everything about history. And that's what you find. People are curious to learn. Sometimes it's for career advancement, but most of the time it is to, you know, satisfy their curiosity all through their life. Yeah, my my father's first distance course was in the 1950s. It was a correspondence course. Yes, that he took um, he took just for personal learning. Yes, but he was uh, stationed on an army base or an air force base in Alaska and wanted to take a course, and so it was correspondence through the mail. My, how things have improved since the 1950s. Yep. <laughs> That's amazing. That's what amazing. Was, what was the process you went through at ASU to, to make this decision or to get buy-in, to, to turn towards uh, having significant online? I think the, 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 the process is, you know, when you make the case, and you go back to our charter again. Our charter says that we want to have significant impact in all things that we do and that we take responsibility, as we said, for the economic, social, cultural, and overall health of the community that we are embedded in. And then you then say that we are, you know, about access, making education available for everybody, opportunities available for everybody. And then you say, but then you're going to do all of this with excellence as an imperative. Now you start to go back and look at that tenets of the charter and then that is being reflected in this form through online being one of those platforms by which we are doing that, then you get buy-in. And, you know, if you tell people that, you know, we, you need to do more, that's one type of reaction. 
But when you say, we want you to do more, but we're going to surround you with help so that you get all the assistance that you need, and through that you are now going to have this impact, then the conversation quickly changes to something from doing more to doing something that they become passionate about. You've experienced a lot of growth in the last 10 years. A lot of different universities have moved into online, but few of them have grown like you have. Were you prepared for the growth? Um, What were the biggest challenges that you faced? Happy surprises and maybe (laughs) the other kind. We are are, are thrilled about the growth. Uh, Were we prepared for the growth? We did have in our aspirations to want to grow rapidly because with technology, you can deliver them. So we always challenge ourselves to a lot more than you know, somebody would think that we would be capable of because we believe in that. And we do that because of the innovative mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset that I talked about in the beginning. We are always ready to do more. I mean, people would say, do you think that you can execute even if you had as your ambition that you want to be a half a billion dollar enterprise and now we are at $618 million wanting to achieve $815 million by 2025? Do you think that you're, you know, you're capable of doing that? I think, I think we pose the question in a different way. Instead of asking, are we capable? We ask the question, what does it take? And with the mindset that we have, we keep moving forward, charging forward, because the need out there, Stephen Scott, is so much, you just can't rest. You just can't pause. You just have to keep charging forward. And we are very blessed to have an amazing group of faculty members at the institution, amazing staff members that are contributing their very best for moving the institution at this pace. I often would say to people, ASU is advancing with speed university or (laughs) advancing with scale university, whatever way you want to call it. How many online students did you have 10 years ago? Ten years ago, when we started the online program, I mean, we had this distance learning kind of thing, maybe a couple hundred, maybe a thousand, maybe not a whole lot. And how right many... now we have 30,000 students, 35,000 students online in programs, and about 500,000 students in our Global Freshman Academy. 500,000 in the Freshman Global Academy? The Global Freshman Academy, yeah. Wow. So you're adding um, online students, you're adding more than 3,000 a year average over 10 yes. years? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That would be a good. That would be a good way of looking at it. Yes, that's a pretty good. Growth. Yeah, because oh, when President Crow started this, you asked you asked me, you know, where we prepared for the numbers. President Crow, when he started this, uh, you know, uh, ten years ago, basically the the the, the aspiration was the following: that we would have hundred thousand on campus students and hundred thousand online students, one to one, degree seeking, and then. Now he's talking about a million students in terms of Global Freshman Academy. I mean, so the aspirations are always, you know, far ahead of where we are, but that's what challenges us, motivates us, and gets things done. How do you market the, um, or how do you get the word out about the, so Global have, Freshman, have, um, the Global Freshman Academy? I think we have partners. We have edX as a, uh, as, as a partner. So, um, you know, the MIT uh, edX at MIT. So we have partners that we work with. You know, one of our um, content um, delivery partners is Pearson. So we have many marketing channels through which we get the word out. But the best word out is the fact that our quality is high. Our completion rates in terms of programs, degree seeking, 
is very high in the 90s when you talked about some of the private offerers their completion rates are far 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 less and so we believe that quality and performance speaks for itself of course we market through all the marketing channels that we can market it uh, you know online you know all kinds of marketing efforts that we do uh, you know i remember one time uh, somebody was telling me i was just at um, long beach airport in the security line and i saw the trace having asc online or something and um, you know so we are everywhere uh, but that alone is not sufficient is that you have to show that we are also uh, you know delivering the quality and at the, at, the, at the end of the day it's about partnerships right anything that we do is about finding the right partners working with the right partners starbucks has been an amazing partner for us now adidas and uber are now amazing partners there are many many mayo clinic is our comprehensive clinical partner we have so many partners because we believe partnership is a way in which you get things done at scale yeah it's hard to do things alone with corsera for, for corsera for example we are doing the master of computer science and so this again a partnership i mean it's all about partnerships how do you distinguish um help us see the difference between the freshman global students and um your regular online students or face-to-face -face students can anyone sign up for this free freshman experience yeah. global freshman academy is free for anybody who wants to pursue freshman courses no problem if they eventually want to take that and and then they feel that hey i've gotten the content you know well underway and i would like now to be tested and certified for me um then we have a small fee for that so that they get the credits for it so if i lived in phoenix arizona could yes. i take that oh absolutely you can you can take anywhere wherever you are does it does it um affect your bottom line has it had any impact on revenue no i mean uh, we find that the more those students are going to now come back and engage with us in terms of becoming degree seeking students right so it all works out at the end of the day i always find when you do good, good deeds never go you know <laughs> never go unpunished <laughs> do you, do no, you in this case it, you know, good deed always pay. You know, That's right. produces its 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 its, its you know its, its, its rewards, and we, we we see that we see that. Do you still have students sign up for your uh, ASU online and just pay right up front, or do they all start in this freshman global academy no, no, for no, free? No. no, no, many of them, many of them go directly into their um, academic programs and they pay and they just get started right away. Global freshman academy is only for students who are thinking about whether they want to get into college. And they want to experience the courses. So they they sign up, they take the courses, they they uh, are they graded like anybody else, or yes, is it they, just they, taking the courses? No, they take the courses, they are graded, and then if they want to get credits for the courses, then they have to verify they their ID up. and then take the yes exactly. They sign up and take a an assessment yes. that makes sure they yes exactly. Prepared. What percentage of your uh, Global Freshman Academy students convert into degree-seeking students? I wouldn't know the answer to that. I have to ask my online folks. <laughs> you know, I am a, believe me, Scott and Steve, I'm a computer scientist. I have a lot of data in my head, but that data I don't. <laughs> I don't blame I you, but I can just, I can just, I have in my head this image yes. of students um, in uh, Ethiopia and London and Hong Kong yes. and yes. India, yes, uh, where you were born, and all yes. over the world, people that yes. um, 
on the reservations, people that may yes. not have any opportunity at all, um, signing up for free, getting some confidence built up, and yes. finding a vision that they yes. didn't have before. Correct. All over the world. Correct. Correct. All over the world. That's what is very exciting about this. In fact, we have launched a product called the Digital High School now. And so to motivate students to get high quality instruction in high school. And then imagine the high school students now taking Global Freshman Academy because they are mm. they want to get advanced uh, learning. And uh, so that they can take these Global Freshman Academy courses. So this is available for many, many people to either try out how it feels like or get comfortable with the freshman content and or understanding what it means to be in college and get a level of confidence developed before they actually enter college. We've just been through a similar thing. Um, we recently have been approved for a dual enrollment partnership with our local technical school, which sounds like it's not a big deal, but we we exist in two different worlds. They're clock hours and competency-based, and we're credit hours and Carnegie-based, and uh, uh um, we we did it for the exact same reasons. We want those students who who are going to technical school and who may not at this time or may not ever have imagined themselves as university students to begin to accrue credit at the university yes. for their yes. work. So that so that should they decide to come over here, they've already got quite a substantial leg up towards an associate exactly. or a bachelor's degree. Exactly. Our and we have it all Yeah, I'm sorry. Our community is very excited about it uh, for all the reasons that you mentioned. That's, that's, exactly, the, that's exactly the case, uh, Steve. And, you know, we have a tremendous articulation agreements with community colleges to make uh, this transfer process so seamless and simple because we want to welcome, as you said, the access machine, going back to the anchor, you know, that we want to welcome students who want to pursue higher education give them the opportunities, give them the f fantastic experiences and the high quality education experience, then, um, you know, it, it, it will speak for itself. You talk a lot about this uh, entrepreneurial mindset. Yes. Tell us about that. So I think, you know, increasingly what I find, uh, Scott, is that, that, you know, it is not just enough in the future of work that we talk about to have the skill sets as important as they are but also to develop mindsets. An important mindset is the entrepreneurial mindset, which is that you are willing to go and try out things. Sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail. But just because you fail, you don't stop trying. You keep trying and trying, you fail and fail and fail, and you succeed. So that process of trying and failing, and that not becoming a failure, therefore, but it is a part of your mindset that you build is exceedingly important for no matter what you do in your life. Whether you end up being an entrepreneur, fine. Whether you're in public service, whether you're in academia, whether you're in industry, it doesn't matter what you do at the end of the day. That mindset, I call it the infection. Once it is there, then it expresses itself in so many forms all through your life. And that you will be willing to take challenges, willing to solve problems, and complain less, do more, and take responsibility. And so we uh, we believe that you know the mindsets are what you are, and, and 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 you don't just you know this is not something therefore you teach. So the university itself 
has to be entrepreneurial if you want to now train people to think entrepreneurially right that's right. important you cannot you cannot teach it you have to be it you have to be it you university. have to model it yes you have to model it and when they're immersed in an environment of the being then they become it we're all and kind of that's yeah no go ahead no that's the most important thing and that's why you know as asu whatever we want our students to be the ideal characteristics we want the university to be it it seems like we're all born with um the the um the mindset of being willing to take risks we we learn to walk and we fall and we learn to ride bikes and we fall and kids learn how to skateboard and they fall and just all these things but the older we get the more risk adverse we become exactly and and uh it's a shame isn't it it is a shame it's it's beautiful that you spirit that way scott you're right we are free spirits willing to do a lot of experimental things but then over time we lose it somehow or it is not cultivated let's put it that way i think and school so i think i was going to yeah. say i think school might actually beat it out of us yeah. uh, we you know yeah. in the in the most traditional sense um we uh traditional education doesn't actually encourage that kind of risk taking yeah. yes yes you are correct about that and i mean uh, in fact i i say that this has to now percolate to k12 systems also because you want people not to lose it and regain it but people then keep building on it and developing it and um so that's something you know you can you can imagine universities again have a role to play and we take it also very seriously is we after all have the co- teachers co- colleges of education where we train the teachers of the future you know and I- if you can make a difference there then that can again impact what happens in schools as students go through this I've taught some high school classes and one of the differences I've noticed between high school students and college students is that um at least in my very small anecdotal um world is that the high school students were terrified of failing the class because if they failed yeah. it they wouldn't graduate with their graduating class. Yes. College students at least know that they can retake a class or do it in summer and and yes. most people don't graduate precisely on their four-year mark. But, yes. it, but it seems like when we go through public education, it yes. kind of beats us out of taking risks. Not everybody, yes. but yes. it beats that risk-taking out of the people. Yeah. Yes. I agree. Yes. Sometimes it's a school. Sometimes it's a family worried about making sure their kids are, you know, yes. uh, doing well and graduating and getting the A's and so on, that they're not willing their, to have their children take those risks you know and um i think i think it requires a rethink basically and to the extent that higher education enterprises can impact that not only at the university but also then you know backward into the uh, you know into in, into the high schools and 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 and, and the k12 spectrum uh, that can be exceedingly valuable how you can help impact and change that also um i think it's very important i mean if it's important at any point in time it is now because everybody is worried about what does technology do to my career my future my all of that my job and so on i say that in fact technology is an asset it depends on how you are able to think about it technology and humans working together and that happens to be also my area of research expertise when i'm working with people with disabilities how do you get technology to enhance your abilities which then enhances abilities for everybody we are all disabled after all It almost feels like every student ought to have an online class because the world is moving yes. in that direction. 
Correct. And if Correct. It's a very good point. And if they can't thrive in that environment, then we, we should be concerned. Exactly, because that's what you think that ultimately they will adopt uh, through their life, is learning through technology and through online mechanisms that keeps them always at the cutting edge and beyond. This is Ponce, this has been so much fun visiting with you. Steve and I like to think that um, on occasion that we're creative and innovative. Um, <laughs> but, but I, you guys I, are. You yeah, guys are. Scott enjoy is. talking to I, you, by the I way. try to do my best to hang <laughs> but, on. But this, but you uh, guys are. It's very clear by the way you're questioning <laughs> and the way we're engaging. Uh, this conversation has shown to me that you guys are in the bandwagon uh, that we are all in, and I think it's exciting to see that. Yeah, but it's so it's so fun to visit with somebody like you that has been this creative, this innovative, uh, and realize that there is so much more out there that we we allow ourselves to be a little bit um, captured by the world that we see. And the more we talk to others whose world is different, the more the possibilities grow. Yes. Um, and you have really taken to heart this idea of inclusion to make sure that everybody gets an opportunity for a high-quality education um, to the extent that you're giving the first year for free. Well, thank you so much for helping us um, yes. see a vision of what you're doing. And, and thank you for serving so many people around the world. Thank um, you. Thanks to you too, Stephen. Descartes, and thanks for reaching out to me. To, I enjoyed the conversation and look forward to someday hosting you all at ASU. Thank you. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest via the telephone from his office in Tempe, Arizona, Dr. Sethuraman Panchnatan, who is the Chief Research and Innovation Officer for Arizona State University. We thank Ponch for joining us, and we thank you, our listeners, for listening to us. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.